one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a very, very special episode of Talking Space. Two reasons. First, this episode is coming out on the month of the 8th. This episode is coming out on the same month as the 8th year anniversary of our first episode, which was released September 9th, 2009. And here we are, September of 2017. Not only are we eight years into this show, but this is not only Talking Space episode 911, but this is our 250th episode of Talking Space, as crazy as that is to believe. And joining us tonight are the two original men who joined me at the very start of this show, including Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Again, this is, this is going to be a quite a special evening, and I have been looking forward to this since we had pl- started planning this. And uh, uh, we'll expound a little later on how special, really, really, 250 episodes really is. But, Sawyer, I can't wait to go ahead and, and get into uh, the discussion with our guest tonight. Oh, me too. And also, one of our three merry men who joined us on that first Talking Space episode is Mark Ratterman, who's here tonight. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here, as I so often say, and I'm quite proud to be connected with Talking Space. Thankful for where we've been. Looking forward even more to what's ahead. Oh, yes. And joining us is another member of the team who's been here for about half as long as we've been on the air, which four years is still an extremely long time. And we are more than happy and proud to have with us on the team Cat Robinson. Welcome, Cat. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure. And it's also the month of my four-year anniversary because I originally came on, as I said, in episode 910 because of my involvement with presenting my own research at the International Astronautical Congress. And while this episode with our very special, very excited about guests is airing for all of you, I will actually be in Australia at my fourth International Astronautical Congress. So it's very special and it has been quite a ride with you all and I'm happy to still be on the good ship talking space. Kat, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing um, your IAC uh, reports too because that's that's going to be something uh, quite remarkable and I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to to hearing what uh, what treasures you come back with, and uh, glad that we have somebody over there representing us out there. Yeah, I'm happy to be there. It's, it's really great. I'm going as a NASA-sponsored student, but also going to get to do a couple things for Talking Space, too. So it'll be uh, quite the multitasking adventure for me, but I'm really excited uh, about not only IAC, but uh, touring the Deep Space Network, which I'll have just completed when this episode comes out. And um, we'll be in the middle of the Space Generation Congress as a delegate. Um, So I'm really excited to share it all with you. All right. 
And joining us tonight as our special guest for our 250th episode, we could not be more excited to have this person on. She is not only a NASA astronaut, she began working with NASA in the 1990s on many different programs before being selected as a NASA astronaut as a part of the class of 2000. She flew aboard STS-128, which brought her aboard the International Space Station for three months as a part of Expedition 20 and Expedition 21. After returning on the space shuttle of STS-129, she got one more flight in in her NASA career, flying the final flight of the space shuttle Discovery on STS-133. She has worked on all different parts of the space shuttle program, as well as now beyond the space shuttle program with her art, where she is a fantastic artist. And we're excited to talk with her about that, so please welcome our very special guest for our 250th episode, Nicole Stott. Nicole, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's quite the anniversary, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. And yeah. uh, talk about timing. This month marks eight years since Talking Space has been on the air. And if I'm correct, it marks eight years since your first space flight, correct? It does. In fact, uh, let's see, the start of last week was the launch of STS-128. And on my way to spending a little over three months on the International Space Station. So yeah, we're right in the middle of it, the beginning. <laughs> Looking back on it eight years, you know, into the future, what is the one thing that you remember most vividly from your flights? Oh, my gosh, that is, you know, that is always such a difficult question. But uh, I think at the core of all of it is certainly the, the people that you get to spend your time with there. And, and I'm so thankful that our, there are other people there, you, you know, that we have this international mix of crew members that are living and working on the station that way or or our, our crews on the, the space shuttles. It's, it's so nice that that's a thing we share with other people. And most vivid, without a doubt, is floating in front of a window where you can uh, look out the, the window and see the earth below you. There, there's no doubt. And you know what? I have to just pause because there is a dolphin swimming out of my backyard in the canal. Oh, boy. <laughs> That is Speaking of so vivid, fantastic. there you go. I think it's, it's, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, it's either a dolphin or a manatee, so one of the two, but that's outstanding. Oh, wow. Sorry, you know, we can keep this in if you'd like. But... Oh, please, <laughs> we have to. Oh, you know, this is the kind of thing, you, you know, we can, I would like to connect this right back to uh, looking out the window back at the planet, because while this would be more of a micro kind of thing that you might see from a space station, which you would not see just with your naked eye and probably not even with a really great camera. But the thing that makes that view out the window so stunning, I really think is, is certainly the, this just this glowing, beautiful planet. There is, there's no doubt. It is all those colors you imagine earth to be just continuously glowing and uh, crystal clear and, and at night, you get those the lights and the lightning moving across the planet and all of that. But you very quickly transition from I'm from Clearwater, Florida, to I'm from planet Earth. And that that is something I try to reflect on every day. And so when I'm sitting in my backyard of my new house and a dolphin or a manatee goes by, it's like there's just this connection that's made by looking at things from a different perspective and if, if you want to go back on the answer to that that question that's probably the most vivid thing is that connection that you can make by separating yourself that way hey nicole i've got one for you we're talking about looking out the window 
who would you like to be looking out the window with? If you could pick a, a crew that you'd like to fly with again, could you name some astronauts or describe the type of astronauts that you'd like to uh, fly with? Yeah, I absolutely would have no issue whatsoever flying with any one of the people that I had the chance to fly with in space. And and for the most part, there's there's really not anybody in the astronaut office that I wouldn't you know wouldn't see flying with, and that it would be fun and uh, we would be successful with the mission and all that kind of thing. And I think that the key to it regardless of who it is from, you know, especially from an astronaut standpoint, is that there are people that have just this beautiful mix of personality and professionalism. And I say that because I think that, you know, you go to a place like space and yeah, you're up there to complete your mission and um, do the work, the important work that's going on there, but it's a place where you should be enjoying yourself and, and having a good time as well. And when you have a mix of people that, that that will happen just naturally with, but at the same time, you know that if things don't go as planned, or I should say when things don't go as planned, or when they're, uh, in some cases, hitting the fan, that those people, those same people are going to come together and solve the problem as best possible, work in the way that you trained to work together and you know, ensure the success that way by taking advantage of all the, you know, the strengths of each other. Um, that's a pretty cool thing. And there's a lot of people that have that kind of character within them. And uh, I included that my, my husband and my son, who I would love to float in front of the window with, you know, any one of my family members, my mom and my sisters, I'd love to get them up there so they could see that. And then uh, kind of on a different tilt, it would be really awesome. And a lot of us have said this, if we could get our international politicians from around the world with their heads together looking out that window, that would be pretty, uh, pretty impressive and important, too. <laughs> I think uh, we all wish we could send a few people up to space uh, to get a look <laughs> through that window. Whether we give them return tickets, another story. Yeah. You guys would probably be fun up there, too, huh? Four of you? That'd be all right, don't you think? Uh, <laughs> I think the danger would be that, uh, as we learned from our last episode, trying to describe something so magnificent, the only word we can come up with is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Awesome is one of those words that you can totally and completely appropriately use uh, for the experience, for sure. Growing up in Albany, um, when when did the space bug kind of bite you? When when did your your interest in spaceflight happen and and a career path kind of you know come into shape and crystallize? Well, I, I think there was a little bit of an evolution in it for sure. I I was born in Albany, but my parents moved to Florida when I was about a year old. So uh, while, while I can claim it as my place of birth, I really can't claim it as my hometown or where I grew up, um, but have visited there quite often with, with my, my relatives. Where I grew up in Florida, Clearwater, Florida, on the West Coast, uh, my dad had a, just a love of flying. He built and flew small airplanes. And so as a result of that, as a family, we spent most of our time as a family hanging out at the local airport with him. And I think that at the very, really kind of the very heart of the inspiration behind me eventually looking at space flight as an option was through this interest that my dad shared with us. And, and then I can look at kind of the creative side of things, although, you know, building and flying airplanes is a pretty creative thing. But you know, I thank my mom, too, for 
exposing me to artistic things as well, sewing and, you know, back in the day that, you know, does anybody remember macrame and hooked rugs and Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes, of course. When I was a kid, I played this, those hooked rugs. Gosh, Both of my sisters did that. And she did that and her friends did it. And I just remember being a part of that as well. So I, I, I think back on that and it's funny how things are going on in your life. You don't even really realize the impact they're having on you for the longer term. But the flying thing got my blood through, through my family for my dad in particular, and also kind of the hands-on aspect of it, you know, not wanting just to fly airplanes, but to know how airplanes fly and, you know, have my hands on the actual assembly of one, which worked out so beautifully for me later when I was in the orbiter processing facility with space shuttles and things. But that, you know, that led me down the path of wanting to get my private pilot's license. And, and while I was doing that, that's, that's where I really transitioned to, wow, if, if I want to know how to fly, I should know how things fly. And that evolved from, you know, if you want to know how things fly, like airplanes, then why would you not want to know how rocket ships fly? And, you know, I grew up in Clearwater, right 150 miles across the, the state to the Kennedy Space Center. And my dad was excited, you know, as a kid about the spaceflight uh, activities that were going on and then getting ready for the space shuttle to fly. Um, so all that led into it. And when I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to do something uh, with NASA within the human spaceflight program. And having the Kennedy Space Center there was like this gift, quite honestly, and was very fortunate to get a job there within shuttle processing. But it was a while before I thought about the astronaut thing as something that could be potentially real. I, and it really took me a long time. I, I, I'm old enough that I watched the first moon landing with my family. And I remember that I, mean, I had vivid memory of being in front of the TV with them, looking at the moon outside and talking about it as a kid, as a young child. But even then it was like, wow, that's really cool, but that's something other people do. It, you know, it never crossed my mind then or for a very long time that anything about me or what I had done or perhaps would do would uh, be the kind of stuff they'd want to choose uh, as an astronaut. And so uh, while I was working at the Kennedy Space Center and helping prepare the spacecraft and the operations and processes for uh, other people to fly in space, I started seeing what astronauts do, you know, 99.9% .9 of their time down here on the ground, which is not flying in space. And, and I realized, wow, that's a lot like what I'm already doing as a NASA engineer. Mm -hmm. And, and so I started talking to the people that I consider to be my mentors and they encouraged me to pick up the pen, which you had to do back then and fill out the application and you can, believe me, when I see them, they routinely receive my thanks <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I mean, I would not, I, I honestly believe I would not have thought enough about myself and what I was doing. I didn't just didn't have the confidence to think that anything I had done or was doing would stand out as something that the selection committee would pick. And so I'm very thankful to them. And, and I'm a person who loved my NASA job every step of the way. I mean, there was nothing I did at the Kennedy Space Center or for two years flying on the shuttle training aircraft at the Johnson Space Center before coming an astronaut that I did not love and did not feel like I could have spent years and years doing. So very fortunate that way 
too, that that the astronaut job seemed like this really wonderful evolution of what I was already doing that was so cool at NASA itself. And then with this bonus of maybe someday potentially getting to fly in space. One thing that I would like to ask, and when you talked about mentoring, I was very excited. Actually, I've just recently started a new job at the university where I coordinate a uh, mentoring program for graduate students, including women in STEM and first-generation students and underrepresented minorities. So to hear you mention the role of your mentors, to me, I was just like, oh, I have their orientation for our new cohort of mentees tomorrow, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them this. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, one thing that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about or that, that I'm interested in, especially as a as a woman in science as well, is, is maybe you could talk a bit about, you know, your experiences, not only as a woman in STEM, but more specifically, when you were young, who were the women that inspired you as a young girl and as a young engineer? And even now, who are the women who are inspiring you? You know, I, there was a point in time where I don't, I don't think I knew what the word mentor was. It, maybe it wasn't out in the lingo yet or whatever. But you know, there were certainly people along the way that influenced uh, my appreciation of things, I guess, even if they were things that I didn't ultimately choose to be my path. And uh, for instance, I had two women teachers in high school that, uh, actually three, um, two of them were biology teachers. And one was, a, a you know, a, a, an intro to aeronautics teacher. And and I remember when I found out about that class, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm at high school where it's all math and all this other stuff. And I get to learn about flying things too. How cool is that? And Mrs. Ransom was the, the one to teach us that. And, but these two biology teachers, um, Mrs. Wilcox and Mrs. Steele, were people that, that I tell other people about from the standpoint of you will have people in your life that see something in you that you may not ever see in yourself without them pointing it out to you and encouraging you. And for me, I, you know, biology was not something that really excited me. I don't, I don't think when I was in high school, but they somehow saw something in me and encouraged me to take it. And I did well. It's not what I chose as a lifelong path or anything, but it made me understand that you know, that I could be successful at things that I didn't necessarily know I could be successful at and that I could be curious and learn about things that weren't necessarily going to be the path that I chose in life, but they could, uh, you know, be really wonderful kind of backdropped to that. And so those women for sure in high school and I, you know, every step of the way, my mom has been one of those people, one of those women in my life. My dad, even out at the airport, what was so cool to me was it wasn't just men that were flying at the airport then. There were, there were women out there, young women that were doing, they were the glider uh, towing airplane flyer you know, person. And they, you know, they were flying gliders as well. And they invited me to fly with them. And, and they were hanging with, you know, with these men that were out at the airport, just like anybody else. And it never was an unusual thing to me. I, I don't ever in my life remember looking at like, oh my gosh, look at Val. She's out here with all these guys. How'd she do that? Kind of, it just was a natural kind of thing to see. And I, I think on top of that, none of those people ever in my life told me that I couldn't do something because I was a girl, because I wasn't smart enough, whatever it was. And, and that I think plays a, a huge role in encouraging somebody to at least try. 
And, uh, I, and I'm very thankful to them for that. And, you know, every step of the way, there's going to be people in your life that, uh, that you even forget about, sadly, that have influenced you or inspired you. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I answered your question or not. No, no, that was really, it's great and incredibly encouraging to hear uh, a story about no one holding you back. So no, that was great. I loved it. And as a, as a fan of mentoring myself, it's always great to hear the importance that they play in your life. Well, and it's, you know, you, I think sometimes we don't even know when we're being that mentor. And I would say for girls in particular, for young girls, uh, maybe even for older women, I, I'm not sure about, about that, but for young girls, for sure, which is why I will say thank you to, to you for what you're doing, is that but my son is 15 and I go into, I've been going into his classrooms, you know, since he was first in classrooms and talking to kids and stuff there. And, and even in other classrooms, I've seen it where little boys, they don't really care if it's a man or a woman standing up in front of them, talking to them about, you know, some cool job or some cool thing that they might not think they're, they're capable of doing. But young girls, I think, they need more of the see it, be it thing. They need to see women doing things that they might think are otherwise impossible. And so it's really important, I think, that we take that responsibility to be, you know, in their face <laughs> and, you know, and showing them, hey, there's, there is nothing stopping you. There really isn't. And one of the lines I love, I stole this from somebody and I wish I need to go back and find out who it is, but, and it was used in some other context, but it can be used for airplanes or spaceships or pretty much anything else is, you know, the, the airplane doesn't care if you're a boy or girl. All it cares that who's ever operating it is flying it properly and knows how to, you know, work the throttle and the landing gear and, you know, all of those kinds of things um, the way you have to to fly the airplane. It does has no concept of whether you're a boy or a girl. And that, I think, is the way we need to think of a lot of things is that, you know, the only thing that stops us a lot of times is our confidence in ourselves, not the the airplane or the, the spaceship. Nicole, as you're talking about the people part of, of your experience, I'm thinking about when you're an astronaut or picked as an astronaut candidate, the training starts. And there's training and travel and, and hours that I can't imagine to get you to the point where you're picked for a crew, not to mention the space flight itself. How key, how critical is family to what you're working towards and, and accomplishing it? You know, that's a great question. And there's a number of, you know, a number of angles on that one, too. Um, certainly having a family who is supportive of you doing something like this. I mean, supportive of you filling out the application, supportive, you know, once you get selected, if that, you know, that chance and, you know, where happens and, you know, knowing that every step of the way, they're going to support you. And they're going to support you, even though it's something they might not ever have chosen for you or for themselves. And even though we all know it's a lot more difficult to be those people watching their family or friend strap into a rocket to, to launch than it is to be the person doing it. So when you know you have a family that's willing to support you through that, it, it really is a key element of, I would say for me, like sanity <laughs> and, you know, and getting through it all because the astronaut candidate program, it's a lot like going back to school. You know, fortunately it's stuff we all want to learn. You know, we're all excited about learning what spaceship we might fly on or the space station or 
the science that's going to go on with it or the tech that's uh, that's incorporated into it and the the benefit that's coming, you know, the impact and improvement to life here on Earth that comes from us flying in space. We're all into that. So, you know, so thankfully there's that. But I think without the support of your family at the very base of it, it would be really, really difficult because uh, when I got ready to fly on my first flight, when I was selected for that first mission and, you know, getting ready to fly, that was back when you had to do a full backup flow and then prime crew flow before you flew, which meant for a space station flight, it was going to be roughly three to three and a half years of training once you were assigned. And that three to three and a half years is not all here in the U.S. Over 50% of it is spent out of the country. And so you need a very supportive family when that's going to go down. And, you know, when you're four weeks in Russia and then four weeks at home, two weeks in Germany, four weeks at home, two weeks in Japan, four weeks. I mean, that's the way three and a half years went. And then that leads into the time when you're on the space station. And I think the key behind it is that support. And then recognizing that every step of the way I had to be responsible for making sure that my family felt like they were part of my crew. And so anytime I could take my son to a training event, you know, especially the ones where you're in the fun suits or in the neutral buoyancy lab or, you know, getting ready to fly in an airplane or whatever it might be, getting hung around in that orange suit, you know, down the side of the space shuttle and stuff like that, it was important to do it because they needed to feel like they were intimately part of that crew. And I think they did in the end so that when you end up flying, they know who you're with and what you're doing. And, and, and that's a big deal. You know, Nicole, I just want to tell you what I'm visualizing as you're talking about the family and their support. I'm remembering seeing you and the STS-133 crew arriving uh, for the TCDT at, at Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of visualize the whole families of all six of you that would be gathered behind the T-38s, you know, the six of you at the microphone to start your TCDT time. And I'm, I'm just seeing this crowd that's so much bigger than just the six of you. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about our family families, but those crew become family as well. And not just your crew members, but their, you know, their husbands and wives and children and parents all, you know, become a part of your bigger family. And and I feel like I, I will have that for the rest of my life. And I feel very thankful that my son got to experience, you know, the side of the International Space Station program that, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but it's, you know, those relationships that are just so important to making that program successful. And and it's bigger than just the mission controls around the world and the space programs. It's the individual people and their families. And my my son knows and will feel like for the rest of his life that he has family all around this planet that uh, he got to know through his mom training to fly in space. And that's pretty cool that he could be comfortable given, you know, Max and Anya Sarayev a phone call if he was in Moscow to say, hey, come, you know, meet me at Red Square and have dinner. <laughs> How cool is that? You know, or, it, you know, that he has those same kind of people in, you know, in Europe and Japan and Canada that, you know, that he knows are there and that will be there for the rest of his life. So, there's just a really beautiful side to the relationships that are established and the and the family side of it that comes, you know, through the through the training and the program. And 
Not to mention that NASA, I was so pleased because I wondered about this when I you know, first got into the office, even before getting assigned to fly was, you know, how's NASA going to deal with us when, you know, when we have kids or, you know, you when you have a family and decisions that you have to make based on that. And they were so supportive. I mean, they encouraged you to bring your families out to those training events. They supported, you know, one or two trips for your family to be with you in, in Star City, you know, to see what it was you were experiencing there. And that's, that's a big deal. It's amazing just hearing about all of the things that you don't normally hear about when it comes to training and, you know, having to travel and getting that second family. And I miss them. <laughs> I miss them. You know, thank goodness we have this kind of tool, like what we're using right now, you know, Skype or, you know, just the ability to pick up your cell phone and call somebody on the other side of the planet and or email someone just to say hi, even because I miss my peeps in Star City. I, I mean, there are, are people there that I just feel like I should be seeing and spending time with and, you know, and knowing better what's happening with their kids and, and those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, thankfully, we have the technology that allows us to communicate, you know, a little bit better than we would have, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But you, you still have to make that effort. And, you know, it's a shame you just can't. When's that Star Trek transporter thing coming? Because that would yeah. be so cool. That would be so awesome. <laughs> I think a lot of us could use that. Uh, so while we're talking a little bit about training, you know, you've know, you worked helping out with uh, Mission Control and Capcom and things like that. And one project a lot of people forget that NASA has is the NEMO, which is the underwater mock space environment there. How much did NEMO help you in terms of training? And what had you wish you had been able to do down there before going on your flights? Wow, Nemo, that mission and the living and working underwater on Aquarius, absolutely the best analog to flying in space, you know, bar none. And we, we do a lot of what they call expeditionary training, like going off to the Utah Canyonlands and, you know, it's just the six of you out there for 10 days trucking around you know, on a, you know, little mission kind of thing out there for, you know, how you're going to work together as a crew, team building kinds of things, you know, cold weather survival, water survival, all those kinds of things. But there's absolutely nothing that was kind of an all-in-one place mission that was better than Nemo at preparing you to fly in space, especially on the space station where, you know, any module on the station is about the same size as that Aquarius habitat. And you're in this environment that once you're down there for an hour, you're not just swimming to the surface safely to, you know, get out of a, out of trouble or a problem underwater. You have to deal with it, you know, 65 feet below the surface. And you, um, you don't just float out, you know, you don't just walk out the door. You have to gear up in special equipment to do that. And you're in a confined space and all of those things that are absolutely what you're going to experience when you're flying in space. And a lot of us talk about it like the inner space versus outer space uh, perspective and experience, especially with respect to how you uh, experience the planet, you know, from underwater that, you know, that almost micro view of, of, uh, of Earth around you versus in space, this kind of macro that you're looking at, but, but certainly really make you appreciate where we live in a, a totally new way, um, but absolutely the best analog to to fly in in space. And, um, and I'm really, I'm really thankful that I did it before flying in space. There's been crew members that like Peggy Whitson, she did a Nemo mission after her first flight. 
And I remember talking to her because before she went underwater, she actually was questioning, wow, how could this be something that would prepare anyone to, to go to space? You know, she had already been to space and done that really incredible kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so going underwater didn't, at the time, seem like it would be that compelling or that effective as a, a training tool. And I, she's the one I talked to about it. And she said, absolutely, Nicole. She goes, I doubted it before I went, but it was the best comparison to what it was like to live in space. And um, I'm hoping I get to go do that again sometime. You've had a lot of key positions with maintaining and servicing the uh, the space shuttle orbiters. I mean, you served as uh, Endeavor's uh, flow director, the convoy commander for the landing team, project engineer for the Orbiter Columbia. Outside of being named an astronaut in 2000, is there one position you really, really enjoyed and all that? And the the title project engineer, when I was uh, doing my homework, it just seemed kind of be kind of in- intriguing. Can you uh, kind of expand on what that role is a little bit? Well, well my favorite was absolutely all of the above. <laughs> just like, like, you know, I'll tell you because every like like I said earlier, every step of the way, I was in love with the job I had. You know, I started out as a, you know, a new engineer in the orbiter processing facility with the guys behind the ops desk. And there's this orbiter, you know, I mean, there is a space vehicle behind me. You know, I could go touch it if I wanted to. And I was right there with the people, you know, throughout that entire time at Kennedy Space Center with these people that you guys know. I mean, the care and feeding of those spacecraft and in, in preparation for the people that were going to fly on them is absolutely the passion of, of the people that work there. And how cool was it to get to be a part of that? And so, you know, going from the OPF out to the to do the convoy commander job on the runway, I, I, I pin, I'm, I'm like pinching myself because how do you get to do that? You know, <laughs> how did I get so lucky? And uh, and and, you know, and then ultimately uh, the, the floater, you know, the vehicle manager and flow director job with, um, with the individual vehicles and, you know, the integration team that looked at how all of the work that was going on across the vehicles was being done. And, and the project engineer job was, was an interesting one because most of my time at Kennedy Space Center, all of those other jobs were within shuttle operations. And the two main directorates out there at the time were shuttle operations and shuttle engineering. And then there was a, you know, an integration role between the two of them. But, you know, there's kind of this like, oh, you're an ops person or you're an engineering person kind of thing that went on for a while out there. And I, you know, I jumped, I jumped over to engineering um, at one point with the project engineer's job on Columbia. And it's, it's another one of those things where just giving yourself that new perspective into what you thought you already knew really well from being on the ops side was just so eye-opening. And I think it helped me be a lot more successful when I uh, went back to operations and then onto the integration team as a flow director. And it certainly was helpful when I went on to be an astronaut who was having to consider how the vehicles were prepared, how do I prepare myself to, you know, to fly on them, how do I continue to communicate with this awesome team that, that gets them ready for me to fly. And, um, and, and then the project engineering job was one where you really were more down into the technical aspects of what was going on with the vehicle throughout its time, you know, in preparation to fly again. And the ops side took those, those tech aspects, but looked at it more from the scheme of, 
okay, what's the process that this vehicle needs to go through to satisfy the technical side, but to, you know, safely get it ready to launch. And just such a great team. Uh, and, and that's what I think, you know, when I think back and going back to our first question and our first part of the conversation today is that, you know, ultimately it comes down, I think like everything in life to the people that you're getting to experience it with. And, you know, and it was those people that I worked with at, at, at Kennedy Space Center and then later at Johnson Space Center on the shuttle training aircraft that were the ones that encouraged me the most to pick up the pen and fill out the application to be an astronaut. I, I mean, I was so thankful I had that job there. I just loved it every day. And, and I think like any job, you know, there's always going to be times where you're frustrated, you know, about something or, you know, things aren't going quite your way. But when you can walk down into a place where there's a space shuttle sitting there and, you know, let that sink in a little bit, it's you kind of get over that other stuff. I mean, the space shuttle was a magnificent vehicle and uh, you had some firsts and some lasts while you were up there on your first flight. I mean, you got to do the first, you know, live tweet up from space and, uh, along with Jeff Williams there, which we were all tweeting along and watching with. Um, but if I recall correctly, you also were the last person to return from an expedition in the comfort of an orbiter as opposed to the controlled crash of a Soyuz capsule. <laughs> uh, I was wondering yeah. what your thoughts were, you know, and also <laughs> flying the final flight of Discovery on STS-133. I was just wondering what your thoughts were, having been as such an integral part of the shuttle's end history there, of your thoughts on the vehicle and flying aboard it. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely feel blessed to have flown uh, on the space shuttle the way I did. Uh, whether there was a first or a last associated with it or not, I, I just think that there was something so special about that vehicle. You know, and it's one of those things, I think if we go back and look at the history of how it developed, and they, they talk a little bit about, about it at that KSC shuttle experience, that um, the history of it and stuff, but it went from being, you know, a particular concept to uh, one of those things that was supposed to satisfy everybody's requirements. You know, the cargo, the people, the landing on the runway, the, you know, all of these things. But, you know, free flying or going to a space station. And, and normally when you do that by committee, have to satisfy everybody's requirements, you don't end up satisfying anybody's really all that well. And I think the space shuttle, you know, was a contradiction to that kind of thing. I think it did everything that it was designed to really, really well. And to, to get to fly on it and experience that was definitely one of the highlights of, you know, the overall spaceflight experience for sure. And then being that, that final flight of discovery, everybody kept using that word that what was a bittersweet. I struggled with that word because I was trying to find where's the sweet part of this that's going you know, that's going on in all this. And I, and I knew there were the political aspects of it and the decision-making that went along with it. But I, I really struggled with where's that sweet part in this. I, to me, it was just sad. And to walk away from a vehicle that had performed, I don't know if you remember, but on SCS-133, Discovery in flight had zero anomalies. We didn't have the first maintenance task we had to do. That was the result of something going on that shouldn't have. It all just, it's like it, it knew. <laughs> it knew that it needed to go out on a really high note. And I, I think, you know, in hindsight, that's probably a really good thing. That, you know, here was this beautiful vehicle on its final flight. 
you know, standing up, I guess you could say standing up strongly on its own landing gear on the runway, you know, ready to, um, if it had to, you know, to retire at, on a really high note. And STS-133, I, I even forget about it. We originally were assigned as the final flight of the shuttle program. And Mike Barrett and uh, I think even Tim Copra and I were all on station at the same time together and got the call from the ground. Of, like for me, it was two weeks into my station flight, my first flight, that I got the call about being on this STS-133 flight that was going to be the final flight of the shuttle program. And just bawling, crying. I mean, I remember just going into my crew compartment and crying about it because on the one hand, I was so excited, just like in shock to be getting my second flight assignment when I was only two weeks into my first one. I was so honored to be included on this final crew, you know, considered for the final crew of the shuttle program. And then I was crying because I'm like, okay, how do I tell my husband that before I'm even done with my first flight, I'm wanting to see if he'll give me the thumbs up and be all right with me coming home and training for the, for the second one. So it was this really interesting mix of emotions for sure. But, you know, and then thankfully we ended up with uh, the 135 flight, a whole new additional flight, uh, you know, in the program's manifest and, you know, 134 delayed. So it moved, you know, past us, but just to be part of that was, I know it's kind of like thinking about, should I even apply to be an astronaut? It, it made me really start to think, you know, how did I get so fortunate, so blessed to be even, even have the smallest part in this program? Nicole, got to ask a really quick question. If you were to launch on the shuttle and return on landing, where would you like to ride? You know, any one of those seats is fine with me. I'll tell you. <laughs> and but I might, you know, I have to say on the second flight, having the opportunity to fly on the flight deck, you know, in the MS2 position kind of for landing, sitting in between the pilot and commander there with, you know, there's not really a great view out the window anywhere, but that is the best one you're going to get. And I think the vivid memory for me with that was on landing for sure. And getting these glimpses out the window of, and you experience the same thing in an airplane. You know, when you're flying through clear air, you don't have a real sense of how fast you're going. But when you get start going through some clouds, you know, little fluffy clouds around you, you know, that are broken and, uh, around you and scattered, and you fly through those, you get, you know, you get a feel for how fast you're going. And that happened on the space shuttle, too. And that's when I was like, wow, holy moly, we are moving because <laughs> you otherwise don't get any sensation of that, you know, of the speed. And I just remember thinking, how cool is that to, to be able to be on a spaceship that's coming home and have a little look out your window and get this sense of how much energy you're having to dump to slow down from, you know, 17,500 miles an hour to 200 miles an hour to land on the runway. Really impressive. You've been talking sort of about memories and being connected with people, especially earlier when you were talking about, you know, the people that you have connections with back all over the world. And I had these lines of poetry running through my head. I'm a huge fan of like Walt Whitman and E.E. E. Cummings and some of the really great American poets. And I was just, you know, thinking of Whitman and his To a Stranger and E.E. E. Cummings and that, you know, when I carry your heart, I carry your heart with me always. Sort of this idea that art in itself is a way that we carry 
memories and people and also that we use to pass on messages and and you're an artist yourself so one thing that I'd really like to get a chance to talk to you about and I know several of us also want to hear is just about your career as an artist and and how you use your art to share you know your life with people or to share your memories or to share messages you know i i had the opportunity to paint in space which was at the time something that honestly was for fun i, I was very thankful you know in hindsight that we have some really great support people on the ground that remind us that we're human beings when we're flying in space and that <laughs> you know as human <laughs> beings you might in the months that you're going to be living and working up there you might actually want to do something in your spare time that you enjoy doing down here on earth and so I was able to take a small watercolor kit up with me and I painted in the end, I only had painted one painting and it was really, it was really fun to do. Uh, and I wish I could go back, you know, maybe there's a way to figure out how to go back and paint some more and actually videotape it, take some pictures, you know, so I can remember more of it. I have one picture that, that Bob Thurst took of me, um, when I was finished with the painting. How did, how did the painting in space work? You know, it was, I, I wonder, I, I didn't think a whole lot about it before going. And, and I'm really glad that I brought a little watercolor kit because I think acrylics would have been just so messy to try to keep brushes clean and changing brushes in between and all of that, that the watercolors worked out really nicely. And it was just a matter of just taking care of your stuff, you know, being organized and, you know, not squirting the water all over everywhere. And it was fun because, <laughs> you know, you have this whole... Uh, which is why we go to space or, you know, do things from a scientific standpoint in microgravity anyway, because you're taking that gravity out of the equation and things just behave differently. And you've got this surface tension factor that's different and all that kind of stuff. And that, and the reason I say, you know, it'd be kind of fun to go back there and videotape it is because you could do a really cool lesson just through painting in space. And I remember you, know, you squirt out this little ball of water from the end of one of those drink bags and take the tip of the brush and just touch it to the water. And it's like the water just wanted to go. It just immediately wicked over to the tip of the brush. And then I remember looking at the tip of the brush and thinking, wow, that's different than down on Earth. Because on Earth, the water and the bristles all kind of mixed together. And up there, it was just like this ball of water floating on the end of the brush, just around the bristles of the brush. And then I, the kit that I had, the watercolor kit, was this, you know, those solid paints. It's like the little kids and because I figured that would be the least messy kind of stuff to have and you know then you go you transfer that ball of water literally from the tip of the brush down to the paint and you can see it you know moving from the brush down to the paint you mush it around and then as you pull the brush back that ball of water wants to come back on the brush and then you had to be a little bit less heavy-handed on the paper because the paper just wanted to suck it up. So you had to, you know, put, have a little bit more control over that. But it just worked really nicely. And you could just love- use a paper towel to clean the brush versus <laughs> having to get messy with it. So I just love this imagery that you've painted of just the, the painting wanting to come. You know, the water yeah. wants to go and the paint wants to come and the paper wants to suck it in. Yeah. It's just sort of this great image about about art in general whatever the art is a lot of times as an artist you you just it wants to come out and it wants to be in the world well and it I think I think it does and you know I did that painting and it you know and then ended up um flying again and then it was like um 
after my second flight and then getting back. I, I mean, I, I went back to the astronaut office with the idea that I would, I would fly again in space, you know, do a third flight. And, you know, it was in line to do that. And I just started thinking about what, you know, what's my mission, what's my next adventure in life and how am I going to try to continue to hopefully do good in some way. And when I finally decided to retire, it was important to me to find a way that would help me uniquely communicate the experience that I'd had and to communicate it in a way that would help people and, and, and hopefully people who don't even know we have a space station would help them recognize that and, and all of the really great stuff that's happening up there on a daily basis for the last 17 years, you know, that, you know, all of this work is being done off our planet to improve life down here on it. And I think that's a really important message to get out. And then I also wanted to do a little bit more of that reflection thing too, kind of turn it around for the, the view out the window and say, hey, we have a, a pretty cool planet that we call home and we need to appreciate it and we need to figure out how to better appreciate the earthlings that we share it with. And you know that whole kind of planetary message, I think that a lot of us just want to get out there. And that unique way to me just kept, it just coming back to art. And uh, while it's not all I do, you know, in terms of, of sharing the experience, I think that, that art opens up, uh, it's a universal language to begin with. You know, people are going to appreciate or not what, what you've painted, but you can certainly have a conversation about it. And that opens up, and a lot of times the backstory of what I've painted or what my inspiration was in a way that, that gets people pulled in than if I just started talking to them about, you know, the science going on on the space station and, you know, ways to relate to audiences that might not otherwise think about what we're doing up there. And, and it's fun. I mean, I like it. <laughs> I enjoy it. You know, I, it really is cathartic. It's like looking out the window of the station. It's, it helps me remember that I had that opportunity to do that. And, and to try and share that impression in some way, you know, through art, you know, is one way to do that. And, it, and it's worked well so far. Haven't had a lot of time recently to do it, which is frustrating. But it is, it, it's a good tool. Speaking about great tools, uh, the Spacesuit Art Project. Jack Fisher seemed to be having way too much fun wearing that <laughs> suit up there. I mean, he, 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 he should. Yeah. <laughs> that, that third one named Unity, I mean, he was just having a grand old time in there. It was that video that, that was created that's out there on YouTube, if anybody wants to take a look at it. And you've got to see it. He was just like one big kid up there with that suit. Uh, how did that whole project start? And were you involved from the beginning of that? And will there be any more suits designed by these kids who are facing such a, a brave fight with cancer flying on the ISS? I feel so thankful to have had, you know, the astronaut experience, to have flown in space. I believe wholeheartedly, I mean, honestly, wholeheartedly in the work that's going on up there and the partnerships we've developed with our international partners around the world, which quite honestly is, you know, the space station program and the way it's run is just such a beautiful example of how we should be doing a heck of a lot more things down here on earth. And while I know that that was an important thing for me to be a part of, I believe now that I had the opportunity to do that, to put me in a place to be able to support things like this spacesuit art project. And, and at this point in my life, 
you know, aside from raising my son, it is absolutely the most important project I've ever supported. And it's because of those kids you just mentioned. It, it honestly is because of those children who are going through what I hope will be the most uh, challenging thing in their life. And I hope that all of them come through the other side. Um, but to watch the, the strength and the courage and, you know, actually the hope, courage and unity that goes on behind the scenes to help those kids through their treatment and to look towards the future is just so impressive. But back to your question. <laughs> I, I was involved from pretty much from the beginning. Uh, it, it all started with a gentleman named Ian Sion, who is a wonderful artist himself. And he was the founder and uh, initial director of the art and medicine program at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And Ian approached the NASA at the Johnson Space Center uh, with the idea of, of art in space. Um, and his initial idea was that he, Ian, should be the artist in residence in space on the space station. And of course, we had to talk him down <laughs> because um, at that point, that was sadly not going to happen. But through Ian and then a gentleman named Gordon uh, Andrews, who is in the communications office with the station program, uh, the three of us came up with the, the spacesuit idea. And Ian got to go tour where the suits are made and try them on and, you know, was inspired himself uh, to then come up with this idea for kids painting the smaller paintings and then us having our spacesuit company, ILC Dover, quilt them together into these beautiful suits. And the first one, Hope, was made just from the artwork of the children at MD Anderson. Uh, that suit has not flown in space. But when we got done with it, we really felt like, you know, how do we get something to the station? And we never, it never crossed our mind that we'd ever get any support to send the big, you know, full-blown suit like Hope to the station. So right. that's when we went down the path of the flight suit idea. And so we had the kids at MD Anderson paint the se second suit, which is called Courage. And they just helped us paint right on the suit itself. And that you can fold up into a really small package, which the station program supported us getting that to station and with the help of our SpaceX friends as well on a dragon and home on a dragon too. And that's when I, I hopefully all of you guys got to see Kate Rubens wearing that suit on station. Absolutely. And oh, yeah. yeah. We talked about it here, actually. Yeah, it was <laughs> incredible, wasn't it? I mean, I remember being in Mission Control. We did a video conference with Kate as well. And some of the kids were with us in Mission Control who had painted on the suit and got to talk to her. I, I mean, yeah, I got the goosebumps going on because my first impression, just seeing her floating in that suit on the screen was, holy moly, we've just had our first art exhibit in space. And I remember looking at Ian when I was saying that, and he was just, you know, I don't, verklempt, if that's the word, you know, it was just like, wow, that, it was stunning. I just see those colors against the backdrop of, you know, of the interior of the space station. And so thankful that we got the suit there and that we got it back. And in parallel with that, we had, we came up with this idea for the Unity suit. And the Unity suit is another one of the full-blown space suits, and uh, the concept behind it really was modeled right after the space station program and the peaceful, successful relationships we have with our partners on that. And, you know, the, unity is one of the best ways to describe that we work 
you know, within the space station program. And, and these kids, you know, these kids we'd already worked with, um, at MD Anderson, they were feeling through this project, like they were part of something much bigger than themselves. You know, we all looked at any one of these individual paintings and there's a story behind it and there's, you know, a message for sure. And there's a beautiful individual piece of artwork, but all these kids knew that, you know, that when they came together into this bigger suit, it was something much bigger than themselves. And they were talking about their futures and they were thinking about space. And so in those conversations, we were talking about our partners on the space station program. And that's how modeling, you know, unity after that came about. And so Ian and I traveled to all of the headquarters cities of our station partners. So we went to Moscow and Tokyo and Montreal and uh, Cologne. And we met up with kids at hospitals and treatment at hospitals there. And also with some of our astronaut and cosmonaut buddies that um, came out to paint with us and uh, collected all of that artwork and brought it back. And ILC Dover, you know, quilted it beautifully into the, you know, to the suit that's called Unity. And Unity is still up on the space station right now. And yes, Jack Fisher and Peggy had a really great time um, videotaping yeah. <laughs> Unity in space. And if you haven't seen that video, you need to. And yeah, definitely. I, oh my gosh. I mean, just the motion of it, the color of it, moving through the station, the human side of it, you know, knowing the backstory to the suit and, you know, the inspiration that these kids are getting through that and that they know they partnered with kids all over the world to do this. It's just incredible. And uh, just, you know, when we did that, that conference um, from Mission Control with Jack and the whole crew, right. uh, Jack wearing the suit, we had kids in the hospitals in those, you know, those same cities were painting again on some fabric that we're going to use to build a Ford's fourth suit called Exploration. And they were also coloring on these sheets that we'd given them for uh, a project we have called Postcards to Space. At the same time, we were in mission control with uh, astronaut and cosmonaut representatives of those countries asking questions on their behalf. They were there watching live you know, in their own home city. And uh, it just, I mean, it felt like they were there with us. It, it really, really did. And we cannot wait to get Unity back and do another world tour where you take the suit back to, you know, reunite it with the kids that made it. So lots of good to come from it. And uh, as you can tell, I could talk about this forever, but the two things I think we're really looking at, you know, as a outcome of this is we, we need to keep raising awareness of this tragic disease of childhood cancer, for sure. We need to keep raising awareness of the issues associated with that. Um, and, and along with that, we need to, uh, we really feel like this project can do a great job facilitating um, other art and medicine programs, you know, around the world. And we've already started to establish that with the, the hospitals that, that we've worked with around the world. And we have a wonderful partner in Moscow, uh, Elena Kuznenko, who has done already just through the inspiration of this project has, you know, reached out to hospitals there and is doing incredible things with an art and healing kind of, of theme behind them that very, very powerful. And we see that happening all around the world. And then 
I think we need to be working to keep that station and that space research theme, you know, tied into this and facilitate uh, research for pediatric cancer getting to the space station and maybe add a, you know, like a a doctoral postdoc level of peer reviewed kind of science. And, you know, then who knows where it goes from there. But space is an inspirational thing. Space exploration, a spacesuit, something, you know, as simple as a spacesuit can uh, be a very uplifting and powerful healing tool as well. Thank you for doing doing what you're doing with these kids. I mean, they're facing such a challenge with this disease. And, you know, really from the bottom of my heart, you're making them forget all of this for a little while. And as you said, be a part of something they feel that is bigger than they are and allow them to really think that there is a future, not only just for them, but there's a future that they could really, really be a part of and and really shape. And um, again, Nicole, thank you. You're doing really, really wonderful work. And and this is an international effort, too. So just really fast, if anybody's interested in trying to find out more about this, where would they go? Well, there are, um, through social media, for sure, there's a a couple places to go. Um, The Spacesuit Art Project on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, And I think if you just search Spacesuit Art Project, it comes up. Um, we have a website in development, and, and if you just search it on YouTube or Google it, some really interesting articles and videos, those videos will come up as well, which are, are really fun to watch. And yeah, I, I appreciate your thanks. I am, I am honestly humbled to be a part of it. Um, there are a lot of people doing some really incredible things through this, and I feel like I, I'm just being carried along with it, too. It's a real honor to be to be part of it. And these kids and their families, I the strength that comes from them. and and I think you said it right. You know, there's you know, they get to separate themselves from you know what's going on in the hospital with them. And you know, thinking about you know this disease that they have. and and maybe it's something as simple as distraction therapy. I don't know, but it works. I, I mean, it works. This art thing works. And I see these kids come in, they're tired. You know, I, I wonder sometimes if their moms or dads are dragging them in to come paint with us and, you know, cause they'd rather be sleeping or something. And they get in the room and within five minutes, they're sitting up straighter. They're talking to us. They're talking to the kids that are there painting with them. And they are talking just like every kid would about cool space stuff and about their future. And that's a good thing. Is there a fourth one kind of in the works or is that kind of looking out far in the future? The fourth suit? Yeah, there is actually. And it's called exploration. And with the idea kind of tying it all together and, you know, and really looking at that idea of thinking about your future. And it's called exploration. It's going to be the same uh, hospitals that participated before are going to participate but we're kind of widening it out a little bit more. We're not just going to focus on the, you know, the space station uh, countries or partners anymore. We're, we're going a little bit wider, and uh, we have a hospital down in Ecuador. We have some more hospitals in the United States that are going to participate. There's a hospital in Bosnia, a hospital in Uganda. And I think it's, I mean, we are truly going global this time really and truly but but in a totally different new pattern on the suit and ILC Dover is again been as a wonderful partner as they've been all along in this ready and to take the artwork as it comes in and and build this next suit and it's going to be it's going to be the pattern of the suit or the 
structure of the suit is going to be um, more like one of the new Z2 looking kind of suits. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> that is really going to be nice. Nicole, yeah. thank you so much. I really, You're really welcome. wanted to promote this. As as we can see from what you've shared with us, you know, we're not alone in, in, in our journeys and adventures in space, whether it's in art or science or any other endeavor. And we're also not alone in our individual journeys. Um, so I'm wondering if you will share with us, what's the best piece of advice you've received? Uh, Well, I think that it's, and it's one I try to give too, is you have to pay attention to the things you enjoy. And I go back to my dad and my family sharing this passion that they had with me. And I think that's it. I think there's, if you love it, it will be part of you and it will, I don't know, help shape the choices that you make in a very wonderful way that opens up opportunities that I don't think would be there otherwise. I cannot believe how much I love that you just said that. I was reading today, you know, Facebook has that lovely on this day, and I made some comment like, oh, past cat had the perfect quote that she shared for present cat. And it's this quote from Rumi that says, everyone has been made for some particular work, and the desire for that work has been put in every heart. And just... To hear you say that, I was like, this is exactly, this is so great. (laughs) That's really good. And it it is, it's at the heart of it. I think that's so true. You know, this, this suit art project, it is a heartfelt thing. Looking out the window of a spaceship, you don't just see it with your eyes. I mean, you feel it, you see it, you feel it with your heart as well. And that's why we have humans doing these things. That's why we you know, as human beings want to do these things. It's because it, it, it does become a part of us. And fortunately, you don't have to go to space to feel that way about our planet, about the people and other creatures we share it with. I think there's other perspectives that can, you know, generate that same thing. But thank you. I love it. Thank you so much for that perfect moment of synchronicity for my day. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and I'm so happy that we can share it with everyone who'll be listening to the podcast. Very good. And I think that heart definitely comes through in hearing you talk about it and seeing your artwork and things like that. Because I know it has to be extremely difficult to take something so unique that, you know, 600 people or less have ever seen in their lives and try and convey that to the masses and how important it is. And I think you do a fantastic job of that. It can't be easy. Well, it's not. And I am, you know, by no means, you know, professional artist is not how you would describe me. Trained is not how you would describe me. It's, you know, it's purely experimental, but I love it. And I think the thing that I like, the challenge in it to me, besides trying to make a space station even look like a space station, is um, that, you know, there's, there's key things I remember about that view and, you know, that clarity, the almost like a translucence, iridescence to the way the colors were on Earth. And and even on, on the station or the spacecraft around you, it's just this glow. And so I've worked really hard to try to find the paint that so far that I found that best uh, convey that. And, and certainly any of my paintings are going to be my impression of it. I'm not looking to make it, you know, the engineering drawing of anything that I've seen or experienced, but uh, I want to be able to relate it back to something I actually did see. So I do try to use pictures that I took while I was there or pictures maybe that somebody took of my launch, which uh, I'm very thankful for. But it is, it's, it, and I think it gets back to that, how did I see it and feel it at the same time when I was looking at it, had the chance to look at it. 
And I think uh, that's just about how we're going to wrap it up. But we have one all final right. we have one final question though that we ask all of our guests, and it is the <laughs> most difficult question of the entire interview. Are you prepared? I, I'm I'm trying to be. <laughs> all right, ready? It's really hard. Here we go. Okay. If people want to find out more about you, what you're doing, and view your artwork and possibly purchase it, where can they go to find out more? Well, the best place would be to my website, which please don't judge me by my website yet. Uh, it's <laughs> it's uh, www. Yeah, that's the disclaimer. And there's a number of ways to get it. You can get to it by nicolestott.com, by theartisticastronaut.com. And I think by my company name, mpsdiscovery.com. So there's there's different routes to the same place. And, and I welcome critique as well, because I am in that transition stage with it and trying to make it, especially from the artwork standpoint, present the art in a little um, nicer way that shares the backstory behind each of those paintings too and presents it in a way that, yeah, yeah, maybe that I could sell them but I think more importantly that shares the story behind each of those paintings and um, I think there's probably an artistic creative person that can help me do that out there somewhere <laughs> well that's great yeah. we'll be sure to link the website in the show notes so people can go and take a look at your artwork because having seen it in person at Space Fest and things like that it really is a spectacular representation so on that note, Nicole Stott, thank you so much for joining us here on our special 250th episode of Talking Space. We could not have asked for a better guest for such a special show. Uh, you guys are very welcome. Thanks for including me. Um, really appreciate what you're doing, getting the, the good word out, too. So thank you very much. And same to you. So once again, a huge thank you to Nicole Stott for coming on as a guest on our 250th episode. And... Again, like I said at the beginning, I don't think we could have asked for anybody better to come on as a special guest for this show. She was fantastic. She really was. That was really just a wonderful conversation, and she just had so much to offer, not just about being in space, but just about her career, uh, about connecting with people. It was it was really fantastic. There's that word again, fantastic, coming out. <laughs> just, just for you, Sawyer. <laughs> And Sawyer, again, I'm, I'm, I was really, really, really excited to get the word out about the, uh, the Spacesuit Art Project that uh, Nicole is involved with. It's a, a wonderful program, and I'm, I'm wishing it well. And uh, if there's anything we could do to continue to make sure that that, that stays viable and, and, and we get the word out uh, about it and what's been going on about the program, uh, it sounds like it's going to be growing uh, as the future uh, unfolds. And gosh darn it, I want to be the one that stands up on the high hill and, and shouts out about it because this is just a remarkable program. Absolutely. Now, before we wrap things up, once again, we do have to mention the fact that eight years ago this month, the first episode of Talking Space, or at that point, the yet-to-be-named podcast, was released September 9th, 2009, as a fun little project that we had no idea where it would take us. Here we are eight years and 250 episodes later, and it has taken us to space and back. We have spoken with astronauts, mission controllers, engineers, people that have walked on the moon, people that have floated in space, to some of the most important people on the ground that you would never know about, and to some of the people on the front lines helping to make these things happen and to help report on them, and who have been reporting on them for longer than we have. 
We have been absolutely honored to have some of the most fantastic guests on this show. And I can say without a doubt, I am absolutely honored to work with some of the greatest people in the space business on this show, the team members here of Talking Space. So besides a big thank you to all of our listeners who have been here, whether it be from day one or if this being their first episode, we would like to thank you for taking the time to download us, give us a shot, listen to us, and if you decide to keep going this far, to keep on listening. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, just to interject a couple of things. Uh, one, when, when I came up for, with the idea for this thing, I had no idea where we were going to go with it. I had no idea what was going to happen. If you told me that, that we were, would be able to have the high privilege to go ahead and talk to some of the people that we've talked with, be at some of the places we've, we've been at, and bring that experience to anybody that wanted to download us, I, I think I would have laughed at you because I, I really didn't think we were going get, to get as far as we've had. I, I just got back also from uh, Podcast Movement 2017, and I, it was a, quite an eye-opener. I, I, I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot about podcasting in general, but the one thing I did learn was longevity. And when I had mentioned during a session that we were almost 250 episodes, uh, we got just a, a huge round of applause. And I w it, it took me aback for a moment. And I, it just didn't really, really sink in as to why. And a lot of podcasts don't make it. They don't make it past episode 30. We're here we are, what, episode 250. And there's a a huge litany of individuals that I'd, I'd love to thank. And, and folks, I'm not going to go through everybody. You know who you are um, that have helped us along the way, uh, known and unknown. I want to thank all of you that have contributed to this program and contributed to its success. Because without you, this program never would have worked. And I also want to thank everyone that has taken a, a second to download us, to listen to us, it's because of you guys that we can continue to go ahead and offer and do what we do. It's because of all of you that we continue to go ahead and do this because you show an interest and an interest in humanity's reach for the stars. So thank you. I hope you've learned a lot. I know we have, and I hope you're going to be around for for many more episodes because there's a lot more to come. Who would have thought that we would be recognized as press not only at NASA and not only at NASA by name, but internationally, like CAT at IAC and all these other events where they let us in and they let us ask the questions and thankfully let us bring you some of the best stories that we possibly can and some of the most unique stories. We've been very fortunate to have some exclusives that you'll only hear here and even those that we weren't exclusive on. We hoped we were able to bring a different spin to it and uh, there are many episodes that we are proud of. If you get a chance to go back through the special episodes section of our new website, I think that will summarize just some of the amazing things we've been fortunate to cover over these last eight years. And that's only a snippet of what we've been able to do. It means a lot to be a part of this podcast and, and the history. And just as an academic, one thing that academics don't always do well is to communicate their research to a non-academic audience. And it's something that I'm very passionate about that uh, we should be able to do that. And Talking Space is just a great way to be able to uh, communicate about some of these more nuanced issues that I'm knee-deep in. <laughs> <laughs> 
There are so many people to thank, but like Gene mentioned, can't mention all of them by name. There are a few people, though, that I do want to mention by name in particular that helped us out along the way. First off, Todd Cecilio, who you may not ever hear from on the show, but you sure hear him every time you listen to this show, who helped record all the music for this way back in the day, and it's only gotten more fantastic with time, so thank you to him for that. Russ Dale, who originally did our voiceover work when we had that, even though we no longer have the voiceovers, his voice still resonates on some of our older episodes. A big thank you as well to Jen Shear, who created the logo for Talking Space, which has now gone national, international, all over the place. Uh, so thank you for letting us use that logo and creating it for us. A huge thank you to Michael Forrester and the entire team over at Astronomy FM, who for the last six years have been airing us on their little internet radio station, and who teamed up with us to broadcast three space shuttle launches, both on their airwaves and on NPR and international airwaves, which is still, uh, I look back on that and can't believe we were able to broadcast live from the final three space shuttle launches. Uh, and... Of course, want to thank all the panelists that could not be here tonight, but who have taken part in this show. In particular, Gina Herlihy, who joined us on episode two and still comes on and consults every now and then when she gets the chance in her busy schedule. And same with Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless, who first made her appearance as the fifth Beatle on episode five of the show and has been a regular for the last few years as well. And... Right now, she's off creating some spectacular music, which we can't wait to share and uh, continue talking with her once that comes out. And, uh, of course, you, the listeners, we can't do this without you. We wouldn't be able to do this without you listening and tuning in. And even though we do this out of our own pockets, we don't earn a single penny. We do this all for you guys because we love it, and we hope that you love hearing it just as much as we love doing it. And with that, I have three more very important people to thank that also could not do this without. First and foremost, the man behind the show, the one who brainstormed this idea and who posted the crazy idea to some online forum saying, I hate the way the media is covering space. Who wants to change that? I still remember that post to this day. And a huge thank you to Gene McCulka for doing that and for joining us tonight. <clears throat> yeah, I'm... Uh... Take it away before I lose it here. <laughs> I, I am. I, I'm. I'm sincerely speechless, sir. Um, I was sincerely blessed with with the first crew that that started this thing, and I continue to be blessed by your talents, by everybody that has been uh, just really, really encouraging us on, uh, and some folks that um, I met over at Podcast Movement. They they were they were amazing and encouraging us and and hopefully that lessons and the lessons learned will be reflected in the show going for forward but Sawyer again thank you I, I have to thank you Mark Gina Kat uh, Cassie everyone that has shared this microphone so um, I, I could if you told me this little engine that could has done half of, of what it's accomplished I still would have been stunned and again, I want to stress the reason why we do it is for those who download. A big thank you as well to a man who I'd seen posting occasionally on the forum. Uh, and then I heard that uh, little Southern twang come in on his voice and heard his stories about the FAA and dealing with all these airplanes and connecting that to space. And some, even though he may not uh, be the most vocal panelist, when he does chime in, I think he's one of the most vital and brings in some of the best insight on this team. So thank you as well for joining us since episode one, Mark Ratterman. Well, like I said at the beginning, I'm thankful for where we've been. 
I'm really excited about what's ahead. Of course, that now uh, falls into the past with this episode winding up. I'm thankful for the uh, the things that I've learned about, the technology, the launches that I've seen, and especially, most, most, most especially, for the people that I've been in contact with, both uh, our Talking Space team as well as, of course, the NASA family that uh, we so much appreciate and are so thankful for the opportunities that we have to talk with them. So it's been good. Stay tuned. And thank you as well to another panelist here who Cassie helped bring along onto the show, started off covering IAC, and what a way to start uh, on the show with one of the biggest space events in the entire world and getting to cover that for us, and then joining us along for the rest of this journey, adding some amazing policy insight with the background in political science, in particular space policy, soon to be a doctor in policy and things like that, and now from EFT1 when we first met until now, still honored to share the microphone with you and so glad that you joined the team. Thank you so well for joining us, Kat Robinson. It has been my pleasure. And Sawyer, Jean, Mark, Cassie, who's not here, but I love you and you know that. Um, thank you so much. You have made this journey one that is worth uh, taking and one that I am looking forward to continue on in the future. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. You're the reason we're here. Echoing Mark, thank you to NASA and all the space people who have come, uh, have been guests on the show, or who have reached out to us. It is our privilege and honor to, to do this, and I'm looking forward to see what comes next. And in a, in a year or two, <laughs> when I finish, uh, I won't forget this little ship. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> We hope you'll stay on as long as you can. And I sure will. Thank you again to everybody. I've been honored to be hosting this show since episode three and being on as many episodes as I have and getting to uh, commandeer this little ship whenever I get the chance and hopefully not crash it into the rocks. And as uh, Gene and I have talked about, to be able to fly the talking space flag into many a battle um, at NASA and at all these other amazing facilities across this great country uh, and look forward to doing the same around the world and to keep sharing this with you guys. And thank you again for listening. If you have any favorite moments, anything that you guys want to say, you know, you can always contact us at the contact us button right on the website. There's always mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, talking space on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus. And you can always reach out to us individually. We're there as well. So once again, a big thank you. Here is to eight more years and 250 more episodes. Can't believe I've said this almost 250 times, but as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and go Talking Space. Mm-hmm.